Hey there, everyone. Your favorite Devious duo is back together in person. So we hope you're ready for this in-person version of Dark and Devious. Yeah. Hey, Chris and all of our listeners. Um, we are recording together. It's been forever. I know. And like a long time since we've been like sitting at the same table mm-hmm. next to each other doing this. This is so wonderful and weird feeling in the best way. It does feel weird, actually, mm-hmm. um, because we used to just sit across from each other on my bedroom floor yeah and record oh my gosh i could think of all the times when like my legs would be falling asleep or (laughs) yeah or my cat would randomly come in and now we just have dogs walking around yeah which they're they're now getting used to you Mm -hmm. no more barking at me (laughs) just as long as you don't stand up right oh my gosh this is so wonderful and when i when you came up my driveway today it just oh boy (laughs) um when you came up my driveway today, it was just like, oh my gosh, this feels like a dream. Like, <laughs> because I'm so used to seeing you on my screen. Uh-huh, yeah. I think last time we recorded together was about a year and a half ago. Was it that long? It was in the summer. I was in town for a wedding. And it was shortly after I moved. Oh, I came gosh, back up that's... for a wedding. And yeah, here we are. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that we're back in the same room again. I am uh, too. And what a whirlwind last week. We, I mean, we've had Thanksgiving since mm-hmm. uh, since we last spoke. Uh, I had a birthday since we last spoke. Yes. Uh, like, a lot has been going on. Uh, Do you want to tell everyone briefly what you did for Thanksgiving? Briefly, yes. Um, when I did the traditional, just, like, went over to uh, my mom's house. My partner and I, we just had a nice dinner and everybody behaved themselves and then we hung out with a dear friend of ours afterwards we had cocktails and cheese and crackers it was a very nice relaxing end to the holiday because i know thanksgiving can be a little stressful there's always a lot of pressure like the food's all got to be perfect and you know you might be hanging out with family that you don't normally hang out with um but ours was pretty Pretty tame. Nice. Yes, I know. And, and you've been visiting here. Right. With your husband's family. Yeah. So uh, we're staying with my husband's family here in the Twin Cities. And um, it's it was it was really nice. It was just my husband, his wife, their, our niece, or our, not our niece, our nephews, and then uh, grandparents from both um, my husband's his parents and then our sister-in-law, her parents were there. Um, and because we, it, it was kind of a traditional Thanksgiving, kind of not, um, very relaxed. There was not much pressure for the food to be perfect. <laughs> um, we all pretty much get along. So that was great. But then the food itself was what I mean, how it was kind of traditional, kind of not. Um, so I married into a South Asian family. So there was like, 
your typical green bean casserole, mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, things like that. But then we also had, well, I didn't have, but my family had um, chicken shawarma. Oh my gosh, this sounds um, delicious. There was spicy Indonesian shrimp egg curry. Um, I had the jackfruit curry. And then there also was one more meat dish. I'm Oh, we did do a chicken. Um, or they did a turkey, rather. Uh, but it wasn't... It was kind of... I don't know. I didn't eat it. Mm -hmm. But it definitely was not how... What you think of a traditional Thanksgiving turkey. I love that. Book. It's like, make it your own. Mm -hmm. and, and having curry at Thanksgiving sounds wonderful. And I'm a big fan of jackfruit, too. Like, I love jackfruit. You know, even though I eat everything and anything, pretty <laughs> much... Um, but uh, I do appreciate a good jackfruit dish because it does have a really nice texture to it. And mm -hmm. um, and you can make it taste like anything. Yeah, it really is just like a blank canvas and mm -hmm. just flavor it to however you want. Yeah. Uh, I've had really good barbecued jackfruit before where like it's kind of, it kind of feels like a pulled pork sandwich. I make, yeah, I've made that yeah. myself. I've had it, but I've also made it and it's just shredded with a fork. You put barbecue <sighs> sauce on it and... You know, all you carnivores out there, <laughs> nine times out of ten, I'd say you wouldn't notice. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, have you ever seen what a jackfruit looks like mm -hmm. before? Like, I've never seen one in person, but I've seen a picture of it. It's just like, it's like a giant beach ball yep. of a fruit. Yeah. Which is great because it's like, you get one jackfruit and you get so much, you mm -hmm. know, kind of quote unquote meat out of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so a really neat. I'm hoping it's like a sustainable thing. I, we seems, we would hope so. We would hope so. Yeah. I don't know. Humans um, find a way to ruin everything that would save us. <laughs> so why not start with jackfruit? You're right. It's like maybe the future, it's going to be like, well, we better hope that we can still have jackfruit and coconut because that I feel like those are the things that will like replace so many other things. Oh. Um. But that's awesome. I'm glad that you had a nice Thanksgiving. and Yeah, and it's been really great to be back in the Twin Cities, too. Mm -hmm. um, we drove past our old house, and the new owners are keeping it up. It's It looks cute. I'm happy that it still looks cute. Um, we met some other friends for brunch, just checking up with people that we haven't seen in a long time. And just driving past old places that we go to. Because, like, the, I mean, the Twin Cities was our home for almost five years. So it's definitely a lot of a lot of nostalgia coming back, you know, even then, though it hasn't been that long. It's been two and a half years, right? Right. Um, but still but still it's when it's it's like it's not mine anymore. Like mm -hmm. you when you live there, you you feel like it's yours. Yeah, that's true. And, and then when it suddenly you don't see it every day. I feel the same way about my old neighborhood and my old apartment mm -hmm. where I will like I, I still love to go visit that neighborhood because, like, one of my favorite co coffee shops is over there. And there's a couple other little shops in the neighborhood that I love to go and visit. And um, I just, when I go by my old apartment, I'm like, mm, I hope it's, I hope it's being well taken care of. Right. I, I almost want to, like, write a letter to whoever had my old you or whoever now has my old unit and uh -huh. be like, can I just like come and visit? Like that was my home for like a decade. I really just want to see that view again. And I'm sure too, that they updated a whole bunch of things when I moved out because I had some like 1980s countertops and they probably were just waiting to be like, okay, 
it's been a long time before, since we've updated those things and now we can finally <laughs> charge more for the unit right? probably hopefully <laughs> i can't imagine what the i i had such a good deal on that on that apartment yeah. uh, probably takes six people to afford it now yeah the prices are insane <laughs> everywhere everywhere you go even where you don't expect it yeah prices are insane mm -hmm. so but you mentioned that you also had a birthday yes so i brought you oh my gosh a few things ah so this is from the book borough in pflugerville texas which is where i currently live which is for our listeners a suburb of austin i'm oh going to start with your sticker the sticker oh my gosh i love it and it so the the sticker says the book borough embrace your weird which of course like the whole austin like keep austin weird is kind of their slogan uh-huh and um before well actually this is their normal bookmark but during mm -hmm. pride they would come to the pride festival and it would be embrace your pride and oh i love that and um i i do want to mention that the book borough is not only pflugerville's first and only bookstore but it's queer owned love that um, okay this i have to i have to visit mm -hmm. like to at the very least see this bookstore <laughs> so i like i kind of love uh when my partner and I travel, I have to find out like if there's an indie bookstore in the area. Like when we went to Washington DC earlier this year, I had to get like the t-shirt and I, I want to build up a collection of like t-shirts of, of indie bookstores. Well, Bookboro so. has t-shirts. Okay. Uh, so, well, when I come and visit, I'm going to, yes. I'm going to get one. Um, Kelsey, the owner would love to have you. And I got you a blind date. <gasps> Oh, with a book. This is the I don't even know what book this is. This is exciting. So, this is why I actually waited for you to open it. Ah, and I love that we're doing this. Like, so it's a blind date with a nonfiction, a historical look at secret murder plots. Okay, this sounds so perfect. I for thought me. it sounded like you. Oh my gosh! Oh, and I love. It feels like a hardcover. So, and I love the. It's got a beautiful. Um, wrapping like it looks like should it... i take a picture with a oh my gosh yes let's do do let's that do a picture oh, that's me I that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay awesome so i'm going to like take care not to just like destroy this <laughs> wrapping like i i would normally because i think this is so cool oh and cole is here wondering what it is too History's assassins motives for murder. Okay, this is like the perfect. I this is totally wasn't on my radar, but this is totally something that I would pick up for myself. Oh, that is so. I, I so one. I'm cool. really glad that you like it. Two. I'm really glad that you don't, don't have, have it, it. <laughs> because uh, again, I had no idea what this book was. They're just all wrapped on the shelf. She has a whole blind date shelf. Which I love. I love um, when when bookstores do and that. And when I saw historical murder plots, I was like, history, murder. That sounds like Chris. That's so perfect. Well, and this looks like it will be a fantastic source for future <laughs> episodes. It's like there's nine different ones in here, it looks like. So 
Thank, thank you for starters. I love it. Uh, this is going to be so much fun to read. And Yay. it's great because then, then I'll be able, if I want to, I could just like do a chapter and like read up on it and maybe do an, uh, uh, an episode yeah. and then save another chapter for another day. Oh, this is so cool. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Happy birthday. Twenty five. <laughs> Twenty-five for the like eighth time. Um, well, that was an excellent pick, and I'm so pleased. I'm gonna just set that right here. So yay. So cool. Ah, I love I wish I could open a gift every time on <laughs> right. the podcast. That was so wonderful. Um, um, so but, goals. But yeah, thought I'd bring you something from Blueberryville. And I, we do have Austin listeners. So Austin listeners, check out the book Borough in Pflugerville, Texas. Yes, I mean I have not been there, and I already fully endorse them. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, so much fun. All right. Well, I I'm just like blown away by all of this. This is wonderful. Was there anything else we wanted to talk? We covered my birthday, we covered Thanksgiving. No. Anything else you want to touch no. on? No. I'm I feel like I'm now settled. Yeah. Like it did feel awkward starting to talk to you sitting next to you. <laughs> but it's, I feel like it's old times now. Yeah. I know this is it it's like riding a bicycle, really. It mm-hmm. is. So um and it's fun because now because I think when we recorded before, I think maybe you were recording and you had your stuff like up on your computer screen at mm-hmm. the same time. So now it's like, oh, we're recording with my computer and then you've got your own. I feel like this is a real venture. Like, this is the we, setup we need. Yeah, like two computers set up. We've got our mic in the middle. Um, this is really coming together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After what, two, three? Three, yeah, two and a half years, years something you know. like that. Uh, well, this we're off to a great start, and I'm sure you have a great story to tell us too. I think I do. Okay, let's do it then. All right, so here we are. Time for a story from Patrick. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, Thanksgiving was just a few short days ago. As we know, what would Thanksgiving be? without genocide i Uh, I thought you were gonna go cannibals or something like that no 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 i mean i'm sure that's somewhere someone's culture um but no um i've talked about i have mixed feelings about thanksgiving i particularly don't really like this holiday i mean i i completely understand uh and i i kind of feel the same i feel like say what you will about the whole like family gathering aspect of it, which can, like I said earlier, can be very stressful. Mm. Um, Or be very beautiful. Yeah. I mean, usually stressful though. Yeah. But that gatherings there at the root cause from evil, basically. So there, there's, there is that kind of, uh, it is kind of tainted from the start. Right. So uh, in the past, I've covered, uh, I know last year I covered the true story of Pocahontas for mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. Um, but this year, I'm going to be talking more about, um, yes, definitely something historical, but something that's been ongoing. Um, and I just want to start off by saying this. Um, so there is a terrible irony that exists with any tragedy, any scale. 
Um, and that's people have the tendency to become numbers. Mm. Um, the bigger the problem, the less human it seems to have a face. And the easier it is to distance our empathy from reality. Um, and while researching this, I learned that psychologists actually have a term for that, and it's called psychic numbing. So, Interesting, which I want, I'm uh, assuming it's probably like a self-defense mechanism, because, you know, if we allowed the, the pain and suffering of like thousands and thousands of people to affect us on a personal level for each instance, that, that's a lot. Yeah, to to handle. So it's like, if you can, if your mind can kind of wrap your head around it in a different way, that's more of a protective mental state. Because, yeah, I mean, I think about even when you think about like the Holocaust, there's a, a million individual stories. And that is such an unfathomable evil, like, and horrible tragedy that it's, it's really hard, like, it's really hard to, like I said, wrap your head around it. Right. And like, honestly, right now, what's going on in the Gaza Strip, it's mm -hmm. like, the first week of those attacks on both sides, like, I was not in a good place. Oh, and honestly, I, I feel like, yes, I still care about that. I'm still concerned. But mm -hmm. it's like, your brain kind of helps you cope through that. I definitely see that because I'm I'm a big news watcher. A lot of times I'll watch the the morning news when I'm getting ready for work or eating breakfast, and they have their like special music and their special graphics for like the the Israel Hamas conflict and 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 at first like it seems like the first like week, it kind of is it it puts you in a certain place. But then, like, after they use it for, like, the 30th time, it's almost, it almost, it doesn't have the same impact. Right. It's really, it's weird. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's the same thing, like, there's ongoing conflict in Ukraine, but because that's not the fresh new conflict, it's, it's almost like it's just kind of pushed to the side in your brain. Yeah. Even though it's like, yeah, there's still, still people getting you know, bombed, like there's still airstrikes and frontline battles and all that, that happens every single day, but it's not the thing we're hearing about. Mm -hmm. Yes. And going off of that, how do we talk about epidemics such as those in a way that addresses the magnitude of the problem without losing sight of the people who are affected every single day? So personally, as a person who hasn't had to experience being one of the tens of thousands who fall victim to such an epidemic, I don't have the answers, nor can I truly relate, but I can try. And today I'm going to tell you the story of two young people who are just that. Two of them before moving, I will tell the story of two of them before moving on to the horrifying issues that has plagued their people and peoples for centuries. Now, growing up as a kid in the United States of America, I was taught to say Native American, well, later on in the early years, it was Indian. And that is though the concept of America was so predestined that even an indigenous population was in on it from the very beginning. 
Long before Jamestown, this land was ruled by sovereign nations, tribes of people with unique ideologies, religious beliefs, and laws, and their nations are still alive and prevalent today. Indigenous culture is not the past tense, it is the present. It lives, it breathes, and it has evolved with the people that it belongs to. Now, Aubrey Damron is one of those people that the sovereign nation rights belong to. Aubrey was born in 1994, and she grew up on the Cherokee Nation Reservation in Northwest Oklahoma. Her hometown of Grove is exactly what you'd expect from a Midwestern town with a population of 6,000, which is about twice the size of my rural hometown upbringing. Grove is quiet, it's idyllic with little blue collar traditions, um, and it has its own um, mesh of Native American plus Western inter intermixing going on. Mm -hmm. To the conservative small town standards, Aubrey's life and way of living was far from traditional. You see, because Aubrey is a two spirit, which is a highly respected identity with many First Nation tribes. The term derives from a Northern Algonquin dialect and historically, it was assigned to those who broke free from traditional gender roles and were thought to hold magic. You'll hear people describe two spirits as those who exist in both masculine and feminine spirits, but that's not entirely accurate. And the reason is, is that that description uses binary language to describe something meant to exist completely outside of any binary terms. It just isn't equipped to describe the diversity of expressions in American indigenous traditions that two spirits can hold. However, that said, today the two spirit term has been embraced by modern indigenous communities and has become something of an umbrella term for indigenous people who identify as members of the LGBTQIA community people like Aubrey. Which is, I'm so glad that you're covering that aspect because that's something that it, it's like, I was aware of the term, but I don't know beyond like the skin deep kind of connotation. And I think that's really, and I love that there's like a magical aspect to mm -hmm. it. That is, it just, it kind of defies of just like, Oh, it's, it's a blend of like, oh, sometimes masculine, sometimes feminine. Like, no, that's really not even a full uh, accurate description of what it really means. So. Right. I can't fully speak about what it means myself. Yeah. But um, there is an episode of the show We're Here, mm -hmm. which is the three drag queens that go around to rural communities. And one of the communities that they visit is a community in New Mexico and one of the citizens there that they they help, like they build her confidence or their confidence mm -hmm. rather, and they help them, you know, become an advocate for the community, the LGBTQ community within that reservation. That person is a two spirit, and Very cool. on that episode, they talk a lot about what it's like to be two spirit. Not only what it is, but also what it's like as a member of that community mm -hmm. to be two spirit. Um, which is what Aubrey went through too. 
As Aubrey came to term with her identity, in high school she came out as trans. She began transitioning around 2011, but as a result, she quickly became a social pariah. She endured horrible, intense bullying, as is far too common for members of the trans community all across the world. Before long, she didn't feel safe at school. Rather than step in and help, though, the school's administration told Aubrey's parents that being trans is, quote, distracting and bothersome to their fellow classmates. I hate that where it's like, oh, I'm sorry my existence is bothersome or like distracting distracting it's like um do you want me to just not exist then i that's not an acceptable response right the and also it's like ah can't you just teach the the people who are being crappy to like not be so crappy like whatever happened to like those little lessons they taught us in like kindergarten about be kind to everybody no matter what. Uh, like, That's, did we just forget about that as we grow up? I mean, be kind to everybody no matter what, as long as they look like you. Right. And, as long as they and, act like you. Unfortunately, that seems to be the message that is getting through in this case, rather yeah. than the actual, like, yeah, no matter what they look like on the outside, you treat them with respect and right. like actual human beings yeah. rather than like, oh, sorry, you don't really fit in here, um, so you're not really welcome. Yeah. You're like, um, no, we will make you fit here. Yes. We'll, like, yeah. that That should be the support that you get. And it sucks when you don't have, like, if there's not a large community uh, to, like, give you the strength and the support. Because, it's like, when you can point to be like, hey, I'm not the only one. Like, there's this person and this person. Like, we are all part of your community and we deserve to be treated just like everybody else. Right. I completely and agree. And if you're if you're the only one in this little tiny town, it's really hard to because you're the face then of that of the the struggle. And mm-hmm. uh, it takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage to do that if you're gonna stand up for yourself. Yeah. So due to the bullying, Aubrey would eventually transfer to a different high school for senior year. Unfortunately, the harassment continues, both online and around her in her hometown. Aubrey's uncle Christian, however, is a safe haven for her. The two are extremely close, and he would later tell News that Oklahoma that whenever she would go in public spaces, She knew that people were going to be looking at her like she was an exhibit. He empathized and knew that he would never know how it felt to be her, but he admired her and he wanted to help. Despite all the bullying that she faced, Aubrey's bullies felt threatened by her. She came out strong, and when she came out at an age when everyone wants to fit in, she felt self-assured and unbothered by the quote status quo and she did her best to not let it the bigotry get her down in fact she was often known to pray for those who hated on her as a young adult aubrey started to to advocate for the lgbtqia plus community becoming a fixture at meetings and events across delaware county oklahoma 
She did enroll at a college about 40 minutes north of Grove. I couldn't find what she studied, but eventually all those years of bullying and harassment finally came to take a toll. There's no clear timeline on when this occurred, but at some point, Aubrey started abusing drugs and alcohol. She moved to New Mexico in her early 20s with her boyfriend, Jay. But then after a year away and a devastating breakup, she decided to move back home for emotional support and to seek help with her substance abuse. This decision would upend her life, and it is one that that should be celebrated because it is a bold move to seek help when you're fighting an addiction and also emotional issues. This is yet another example of Audrey fighting for herself, fighting for her identity and fighting for a better future. Unfortunately, this fight will bring us to March 9th, 2019, around 3 a.m. That morning, Aubrey messaged a friend on Facebook, or multiple friends rather, asking for a ride. She doesn't mention a destination or why she needs to get there at three in the morning. She just says she needs it. Unsurprisingly, nobody answers. 30 minutes later, Aubrey's mom, Jen, wakes up to use the restroom. She runs into her daughter in the hallway. Aubrey looks as, like, as if she's dressed for a night on the town. She's wearing a black miniskirt and black heeled boots. She tells her mother that she's going to meet someone. She doesn't say who or where, but she heads out the door. That I feel like even as a, even as an adult, or like the parent of an adult, I feel like there'd still be like a, a an urge to be like, no, you're not. You're not going anywhere at three o'clock in the morning, like dressed up like you're going to go to a nightclub. Uh, but I mean, at the same time, they're an adult. Exactly. And <clears throat> there's really nothing you can do to stop them. Exactly. That's exactly what Jen's mom says. Jen says that she's very surprised and caught off by her daughter's behavior, but she knows that she's an adult, that she can come and go as she please and make her own decisions. And although Jen wanted to stop her, mm -hmm. she could not, especially if she wanted to keep a loving relationship going. Right. The second you start being like, you're going to do what I say like I'm treating you like a child again, that's usually when those kinds of things fall apart. And then they're, and then, you know, they're going to possibly, maybe they'll be like, fine, I'm going to go. And I don't want to talk to you anymore. And, and they might put themselves in a, right. In and a, in a bad situation of like couch surfing or, or a, a homeless situation. Yeah. And especially in this situation where Aubrey came home, who was already going through some troubling issues, mm -hmm. you don't want to push her further away. Exactly. But little did Jen know that as she watched her daughter walk across the dark living room, out the door, and down the street, that would be the last time she would see her daughter. The next morning, Aubrey wasn't home, and Jen started to worry. After all, Aubrey had left her purse and epilepsy medication behind. Oh, that is very concerning. Yeah, Aubrey uh, depends on this epile epilepsy medication 
to control her although unpredictable and rare seizures, but her seizures if they occur. Yeah, last thing you want to do is be in an unfamiliar place and then not be able to control if you have a seizure or not. Mm-hmm. So Jen tried calling Aubrey multiple times with no answer. She then called Aubrey's friends. And then, of course, her loving uncle Chris. But nobody had seen her or heard from her. Her family and friends would then spend the next two days trying to get a hold of Aubrey. On the morning of March 11th, a missing persons report was filed with the Delaware County Sheriff's Department. And you think I would know this from all the research and stuff I consume, but despite what movies and TVs show you and have popularized, the idea that you have to wait 48 hours before you can declare someone missing is false. There is I'm no waiting period. I'm glad that there isn't because, uh, as they say, like the first 48 hours is usually the most important if mm-hmm. you're going to find someone who's missing. And I think if there's anything we've learned from cases from the past that uh, it's better to err on the side of mm-hmm. something sinister might have happened. And then that way, if if it isn't, then great you're pleasantly surprised you reunited with your loved one uh then everything's good it's like no harm no foul but like if someone really is missing and nobody does anything right away and they're like oh let's just wait and see then you might be missing out on valuable evidence valuable clues uh that could lead us to where they actually are right and that was the case here um Aubrey's family and friends they always heard that 48 hour rule so they waited um but when they went to file the police report it seems like the police didn't want to jump into action which I hate when they're not enthusiastic about it I mean you should like you should always treat every case like it's gonna be the next national headline right because it you know everybody deserves the the same level of care exactly i agree um but as we know police don't treat everyone the same a lot of it has to do with how you look um and in fact the uh the the police that they reported this to after hearing that Aubrey was home due to some circumstancing issues, they were convinced that she was not even missing at all. Oh, I hate that. It's like, don't let somebody's issues color your investigation like that. I mean, like, don't just think that because it's somebody who is going through a time with substance abuse issues, that that means that Oh, they're probably just, you know, they're probably just passed out somewhere on somebody's couch or whatever. Right. But like, no, they like, don't you forget, this is a real human being. They are not, they are not their addictions. Mm-hmm. Right. The following day after reporting Aubrey missing, her ex-boyfriend, Jay, receives a panic call from a woman named Dianette. And it's about Aubrey. Now, Dianette used to be a good friend of Aubrey. Oh, used to be. That doesn't sound good. 
Dinah says that she knows where Aubrey is and that she's in danger. She tells Jay that Aubrey's being held against her will in a town nearby, Ketchum, Oklahoma. Apparently, Aubrey owed drug dealers um, quite a bit of money, and if her captors didn't get it soon, they were going to kill her. She begs Jay to send whatever he can to cover the ransom. Dinette has already given a pretty large amount, but they still say it's not enough. Before hanging up the phone, Jay agrees. However, he does not immediately send the money. Jay wanted to call the police first to let them know what was happening. He wants support to make sure Aubrey come home alive. After police do a little digging though, they learn that Dianette made the whole thing up just to cash in for herself. Oh, that's so, oh, that's just so crappy. I hate that. Yeah. And while being questioned, Dianette stated that she didn't think Aubrey was really missing either, but just ran off to party in a relapse episode. She went as far to say that if she didn't think that there was anything to be concerned about, which this is really disgusting behavior in my opinion. Because Especially it, for someone who had been a friend. Right. Like, And it's not only taking advantage of that missing person for their own gain, but it's also dismissing and like legitimate effort to find her. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, okay, you guys tried looking for her, but clearly people don't care enough about her to be found type of thing. I'm like, that's just gross. The police did charge Dianette with extortion, but for reasons um, which I could not find, they ultimately agree with her point of view <sighs> rather than taking the concern of Aubrey's family valid. I hate that, that they, like, that they somehow sympathize more with, uh, with somebody who they just charged with a crime. Right. Rather than the family who's just trying to get their, their child back. Exactly. Then the authorities went on to wait six more days before reinvestigating Aubrey as a missing person. And by that time, it's like, (laughs) it's been... And that was that six days after the first two days, do you so think? So they, they waited two days, they reported her, then a day later Jay got a phone call, then they spoke to Dianette, and then they waited six more days. So we're at about two weeks. I think mean, at this point it's like she could literally be anywhere in the world. Yeah. Because, you know, if someone like kidnapped her and like dragged her across the border or something, who knows? And that's going to be really hard to make up for that. All that lost ground, all that lost time. Yeah. So during that six days of police not looking into anyone, um, it was just absolute radio silence. Now people do question, why didn't Aubrey's family contact the Cherokee Nation Reserve? For each Cherokee Nation or each indigenous nation has its own law enforcement. However, there is reasoning why. This is because the marshals on reservations do not get any help from any state or national police when it comes to matters. That seems like counterproductive because you think that like, okay, let's say somebody who's investigating a crime in one state is like, okay, we need to 
uh, get help from this neighboring state because, you know, of some reason or another, like they can communicate with each other. They can support each other. Yeah. But just because it's a, like a tribal police force means that they like, Oh, sorry, you're on your own. Yeah. We can't, we can't help. So our hands are tied. Yes. But there's more to that, mm -hmm. which I learned. Um, so while researching, I learned that tribes are, um, semi-sovereign while they are entitled to their own marshals under U.S. federal law reservation. Marshals can only handle cases between indigenous people. If a non-native commits a crime against an indigenous person, they have no jurisdiction, even if that crime occurred within the reservation. I, I, that just seems kind of weird to me. So it's just like, oh, you only have authority over people of your own nation right and but it's like um but if somebody from canada comes to the united states and commits a crime here like they're still bound by united like right it, it would just i don't know that seems like there's it just doesn't make total sense to me or that there wouldn't at least be some cooperation maybe mm -hmm. i feel like that would be at least in order yeah but i'm sure some it was somebody's job to hammer out this they did a pretty agreement. bad job <laughs> um so that said if a non-native commits a crime against an indigenous person that would be handled by the state police however with no with no suspect and obvious disappearance, there's mm -hmm. no way to move forward right and we don't know if this is like are there two native people involved or is this a native person and somebody from outside of the community. Right. So uh, that's, that's a really tricky part of a, a tricky wrinkle in a case like this. Mm -hmm. So all that said, the reality is that almost 90% of crimes against indigenous people are committed by non-natives, meaning that reservation marshals are almost always powerless to help. Plus, Depending on a host of local, state, and federal law, non-native officials, such as county, state, or federal law enforcement officers, also have limited jurisdiction around crimes on reservation, especially in cases of domestic violence. Now, even if an indigenous woman on a reservation is hurt by a non-native, the result for the most part for non-native people can come onto reservation and commit acts of violence against indigenous women with impunity. So nine days after Aubrey Dayerman goes missing, police will start investigating her appearance again, but there's not much to go on. Their only lead is a ping on her cell phone at 3.42 a.m. on the morning she was last seen. Gosh, and that's a pretty, and like a ping isn't like exact GPS lo like location. Right. It's like they're somewhere near this cell phone tower. Right. Also, the as we learned in um, the Heyman Lee case, when they tracked her cell phone, mm -hmm. just because it pings, that just means that's the last time it was used in that location. Mm -hmm. So it has to like travel, check in, and be like actively used. If it's like... Yeah, off, if it's off, asleep, it, not, it it's not like anything. we can just use it like a like a tracking device or something. Right. It doesn't really work that way. So the ping was played, or traced rather, 
to an area near a pond about 100 yards from her home. After dredging the pond, investigators only find folding chairs and fishing equipment. For Aubrey's family, it's a blessing and a curse. It's not Aubrey at the bottom of the pond, but they don't find her phone either, or any clues as to her actual whereabouts. Aubrey's Uncle Christian is especially worried, given the harassment he knows that she endured. He fears she may have been the victim of a hate crime. He's outraged by the delays from the police, and tells reporters, quote, Our family had to wait nine days before law enforcement decided our niece was missing. Anything may have happened in that time frame. As more weeks go by, Christian gets the sense that the police still aren't taking Aubrey's case seriously. Even though there's not much to go on, tips do start trickling in, but officials are simply slow to follow up on them. They're slow enough that eventually Christopher um, starts taking the tips directly and then telling the police about them. The county captain doesn't respond though. And what's worse, the sheriff's department won't let the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation or the Cherokee Marshals help in the case, even though both organizations offer their services, and this makes no sense to me. Uh, yeah, the, it, that's a huge surprise and disappointment because mm-hmm. it's like, um, it is literally your job to solve these cases Mm -hmm. and when people volunteer resources i mean people who uh, who have a lot of reach where like okay the the um the indigenous uh, marshals uh could uh get that angle you know that community angle and then the state police could really broaden the search so much more beyond what this i'm sure in a small town your police force and i mean because it would probably be like county yes exactly. official yeah. like i'm sure they don't have a ton of officers to just spare on an investigation like this mm-hmm. because looking for a missing person takes a lot of people i mean whenever there's a high profile case you see that there are there sometimes there's roadblocks set up sometimes there's entire teams of people searching fields uh that that takes a lot of time and effort and to to turn that down almost feels suspicious to it me. feels intentional yeah especially after this person has endured so much bullying it doesn't sound like the community is really on their side mm-hmm yeah and to that point the catch-22 is completely unnecessary incredibly frustrating and then in july 2019 about three months after aubrey's disappearance the delaware county um sheriff gail wells goes on record saying that despite aubrey's prolonged disappearance there's no strong proof of foul play but this is as if they've even looked for evidence at all. Someone shouldn't have to prove that they're missing. A missing person certainly shouldn't have to prove that they're in danger. Because how can they if officials are so readily to, to miss their disappearance? I mean, 
this just uh just baffles me why they are not willing to take this more seriously mm-hmm. um that's so frustrating adding insult to injury it is noted that the sheriff's department misgendered aubrey on all news outlets and circulation that they put out and they also suggested that her disappearance is due to a high-risk lifestyle clearly referring to the fact that she was trans and recovering addict which is horrible because yeah a lot of trans especially trans women are at a very high risk of hate crime yeah that it it's like do they not know the national statistics on stuff like this they might they just don't care yeah and it's like um them existing should not be like a well they chose this life like no you don't get to choose to exist you know right you don't get to i mean you get to choose to be yourself exactly if that's what you choose yeah but that should be okay right it's no one should be forced to be something that they're not right um and further adding adding to this sheriff's department's um inexplicable behavior was that when Christian and Aubrey's mom would ask months later, where is the progress? What's going mm-hmm. on with Aubrey's case? What's going on with our niece and our daughter's case? They were stated as quoting by Christian, Aubrey knew exactly what she was doing. Which, oh. what does that mean? That is, it sounds like they're asking for a slap in the face is what they're asking for because that is blaming the victim mm-hmm. like and like in straight such up, a cruel way it's very cruel yeah Ugh, i hate that so much <clears throat> yeah and adding all this um clearly not caring by the police because who aubrey was mm-hmm. she was a trans person of color mm-hmm. indigenous added to that um but also there's so many like confluted laws of like who can help? Who like can't jurisdiction. Help, why yeah. can't you help? Um, there's adding all that together. It's clearly why Aubrey, to this day, has not been found. I feel like there's also there there's egos involved sometimes where they're like, uh, you know, where like a local department doesn't want they don't want the scrutiny of like a higher level That's of true. law enforcement, or they don't want um someone else on their turf i'm like ah when when that happens i don't know if that plays into this at all but i feel like that is something that isn't necessarily uncommon where people um where there's almost like a competition between different levels of law enforcement no i think you're ex- you are absolutely right there and it's like and you know and all, and also if if it is the case that they are just like we don't care about this missing person. Uh, this isn't the type of crime that we are interested in investigating. But somebody higher up might expose that, and that's going to reflect really badly on them. Mm-hmm. So it's probably in their best interest, if that's the case, to keep it as quiet as possible. But, you know, here we are on our podcast talking about it. Yeah. Like, can't get away with it forever. And they're they're still missing to this day. So so as of today, Aubrey's been missing for four years and nine months. Gosh, that is... Family continues to live without answers. 
Um, and I know you have a lot to say about Aubrey, mm-hmm. and but Aubrey's family is not alone. Because as you, Chris, myself, and many of our listeners know, indigenous women, girls, and two-spheres have been disappearing en masse for generations. And it's not just the adults who are vanishing. That leads us to our second person of focus today, and that leads us to Antoinette Caedito. The last time Penny Caedito saw her daughter, Antoinette was nine years old. It was April 1986, and the Caedito household was an untraditional one. Penny was a single mother of three. Each of her daughters have different fathers. However, all three fathers are all very active and try to take part in their daughters' lives. They regularly stop by the house to hang out with the girls. Many family and friends and even neighbors stop by the house on on a daily basis, too. People come and go as they please. It's a part of what makes their house a home. It makes it so very special to them because everyone feels welcome there. I love that. That's Mm -hmm. a wonderful environment. Yeah, which also um, can create danger. Mm. Now, the Cayaditos, much like many indigenous and Native Americans, live below the poverty line. They live in Gallup, New Mexico. It's a small town about 100 miles outside of Albuquerque, and many of its residents just barely scrape by. On April 6th of 1986, Penny goes out for the night with some girlfriends. She leaves her three daughters at home with a babysitter and returns not long after midnight. She immediately starts getting the kids ready for bed. They're all sleeping in the same room tonight, which is in Penny's. The mother and her three daughters are having a sleepover party, as they often like to do. Which, uh, adorable. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's funny because I was just talking about, before we started recording, about how we had, like, a little sleepover, like, set up in our our living room here where we, like, pulled out the hide-a-bed and, you know, got the fireplace going and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, those are, like, great memories. They are. It's fun. It's innocent. Mm -hmm. The mother and three daughters stay up talking and watching movies until about three in the morning when Penny tells them that they have to get a little sleep. Everyone has to be up at 7 a.m. for Bible school. Oh my gosh, (laughs) I love burning the candle at both ends. Right, Uh, and for Bible school. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's like, okay, we're gonna have a a wholesome reason to get up in the morning, but but still, that's that's fun that, that... they're all staying up late yeah. together. That's that's cute. So Antoinette and her sisters Sadie and Wendy and their mom all drift off to sleep. In the early hours of the next morning, a knock comes from the door. Penny doesn't wake up, but Antoinette does, and so does her eight-year-old sister Sadie. They hear a man claiming to be one of their uncles. They also hear a woman's voice as well but they can't see her. Now, this is all according to Sadie. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing better than to open the door for a stranger, the girls run back to bed and fall asleep pretty quickly. However, once again, they hear knocking on the door. This time, although both wake up, Sadie stays in bed while Antoinette checks the door by herself. 
Oh no. Sadie fell asleep before her sister returned. When Penny wakes up around 7 a.m., Antoinette's not in bed. But that's not totally unusual, as Antoinette's father describes his daughter as being 9 going on 15. <laughs> and also, I, I, I know sometimes I would be that kid who would get up before everybody yep, else. Same. And, and, you know, so yeah, I might not be in bed at, you know, 7 in the morning. Yeah. It's probably out watching cartoons. Same. Mm-hmm. It's often that Penny would get up and do just that, watch TV, and, uh, or Antoinette Redder, and Penny just assumes that her daughter's in the kitchen making some breakfast. But she was not there. Not in the kitchen, not in the restroom, not in front of the t- TV. She's nowhere in the house. Penny then also notices that both the front and the screen door are unlocked which is strange because Penny is positive that she locked it when she got home. After all, she's a single mother with three young girls. Stranger still, Antoinette's coat and shoes are right where she left them, meaning that wherever she is, she's still in just a pink nightgown. Penny spends the next four hours scouring the neighborhood and calls around looking for her daughter. Around 11 a.m., she reports that her daughter, Antoinette, is missing. But the police response is infuriating. Officials tell her that she has to wait eight full hours before Antoinette can be officially considered missing. I hate that where it's like, and now we know, it's like, that's a lie. Yes. It's like, they can start investigating whenever, and in fact, probably... Again, better to do it sooner rather than yep. later. As as I learned from research, your loved one can be gone five minutes, five hours, five days. You can report them whenever. When the police finally begin investigating on the following day, they don't find any signs of a struggle. They point to the unlocked door as an indication that Annette probably knew her kidnapper but there's not much more to go on other than that. Five days after Antoinette disappeared, police tell Albuquerque Journal that they have several leads. But right then, the plan is to backtrack to re-question family members and neighbors, a task that is easier said than done. As mentioned, the Coyodito daughters have three different fathers, which means three different members of extended family. It's extensive, and it's hard to track down everyone. Of the family members that they can track down, they find that many are hesitant to talk to authorities. Some because they have previous criminal records, and others because they just don't trust the police. And given the history of relations between indigenous communities and U.S. law enforcement, I don't blame them. Right, that is something where it's like, this is an issue that is still a problem today and will probably continue being a problem for a long time until significant effort is made to bridge the gap Mm -hmm. between communities of color, especially, and law enforcement. Because, you know, who's going to get answers to, uh, like, stuff like this Mm -hmm. if there isn't trust 
there for like in to build the, on in, to build on, on in the community and the like right. okay like are you here just to hassle me or are you here to actually solve a missing persons case right so with little support from the police Anthonette's father Larry proposes a stopgap solution hiring a private investigator in hopes that people will be less reluctant to speak to a PI but the problem is this leaves the victim's family in charge of funding the investigation and that shouldn't be the case that's that is really hard to do, especially because we've seen cases where private investigators have just taken the money That's and, true too. and gone, uh, which would be really horrible and I really hope isn't the case. Well, um, thankfully it's not. Um, but also, as mentioned earlier, um, Antoinette's family lives under the poverty line right yeah nobody in this family seems like they're rolling in dough to pay for a private investigator right so without the funds larry and penny took it upon themselves to search and they spent weeks knocking on doors and passing up flyers asking for any information about their daughter the entire caidito family is exhaustive in their search Sadly, they didn't find any answers, and the trail goes cold. That is until a year later, on April 12, 1987, when police receive a phone call from a young girl. She says she is Antoinette Cayadito, and that she's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. As the operator continues to ask the follow-up question, uh, the, the hear a man's voice in the background say, who gave you permission to use the phone? Oh, that is... Could you, I can't imagine what it would be like to be the operator on, the, on mm-hmm. that line to be like, oh no, like this could be a fatal mistake for her. Yep. And the girl on the other end immediately started sobbing. The man starts cursing and yelling and then an elderly voice picks up the receiver and asks, who is this? to the operator on the other line. The operator did not say anything, just listened. The call lasted about 40 seconds and then was disconnected. This gives Antoinette's family hope that she's still alive and the police have an idea of where she might be. Unfortunately, there's not much they can do with the call. They were not able to trace it exactly and authorities don't want to broadcast the recording on the news for fear that the abductor might get spooked and either run or hurt Antoinette. Which, I get that. That's valid. That's like the one thing that law enforcement does in this whole entire episode that I agree with. (laughs) It's heartbreaking after hearing what they believe to be their missing daughter's voice for the first time in over a year. The family is forced to go back to waiting, and four more years pass before there's another break in the case. In 1991, a server at a diner in Carson City, Nevada, waits on a disheveled couple who comes in with a preteen girl. Now remember, she was nine years old when she went missing in 87. Right, so now she, that's exactly about how old she's... She'd be so, about 13 or 14. Yeah. Naturally, the waitress assumed that it's their daughter, though. 
However, during their visit, something strange happens. The girl drops her fork on the ground over and over and over. And every time the server picks it up, the girl gazes at her eyes and when she does take it from her, she squeezes her hand ever so slightly. The waitress doesn't understand what the girl's trying to communicate. That is not until the family leaves. While she's cleaning the table, the waitress finds a note under the girl's plate that says, help me call the police. Oh my gosh. I would feel so bad. Like mm -hmm. if I was that server, I'm like, I didn't figure it out sooner. Right. I mean, also like super uh, incredibly amazing that, uh, that she was able to slip that note. I know. On, like, without her captors uh, knowing. Right. It's like you you have to think that she came prepared with that. Mm, yeah. Like, she had to have, like, whether you got a hold of, like, a crayon or a piece of chalk or, or a pencil or whatever. Like, yeah. anything on any scrap of paper. Mm-hmm. Um... Which, yeah, to your point, like, the, I don't know what that server was feeling when she read that. But, mm -hmm. but after being interviewed and shown photos of what Anthonette looked like, the server believes that the girl was indeed Anthonette. But, after all, it is impossible to know, because at that time in 1991, surveillance footage was not nearly as advanced as it is today. Adding to that, officials don't have any sort of information as they paid with cash, and there's nothing to track the couple down. Right, and then, and of course you don't think to be like, oh, what car did they leave in, and like, what was the license plate number, like, or if they parked down the road or something, and they mm -hmm. just, like, walked in, it looked like they just walked in off the street. Right, exactly. Hmm. So since 1991... At that day at the restaurant, there have been no new leads, and police have yet to name anyone as a person of interest in Anthony's disappearance. And if you can't believe it, or rather, if you can believe it, Anthonette is not the only person in her family to go missing. Two years later, before the diner incident, in 1989, her father's 25-year-old sister, Louisa, disappeared. Louisa has a mental disability, and one day she goes on a routine evening walk around the neighborhood, never to return. Now you would think that these two abductions have to be related. After all, Antoinette and Louisa were in the same family. They lived in the same neighborhood. They knew a lot of the same people. However, the terrifying reality is abductions of indig indigenous girls, women, and two-spirits are so common that statistically it's more likely for their cases to be unrelated. That is just so shocking to like hear you say that out loud. That it's like the odds are that you could even have two people disappear from the same family and they're just completely... Yep. unrelated their disappearances uh that is shocking yeah we'll get ready for this because i could not find numbers as current as today but in 2019 nearly 6,000 indigenous women 
girls and two spirits went missing in the United States alone. The number is most likely higher, though, because um, women and indigenous people in general are often categorized as white or Latina. Oh my gosh. I mean, and then also I imagine there's probably some underreporting. Oh, of course. Yeah. Because they've, there's underreported in all demographics, mm-hmm. but especially in those that don't trust the legal system. Right. And I, I imagine um, any kind of minority probably gets underreported in some oh, way or sure. another. Now, New Mexico, where Antoinette and Louisa both disappeared. I just want to know, has the highest abduction rate for indigenous people in the entire country. That is surprising. I mean, I I would have guessed somewhere else. Like the Dakotas or... And maybe Dakotas or Montana or something mm. like that. But, I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing should shock me anymore. Right. Now, Aubrey, Antoinette, and Louisa's cases may not be connected by the same abductor, but they're connected by those numbers. And those numbers have a very long history. Because in indigenous people, especially those falling into the women, girls, and two-spirit category, have been disappearing for literal centuries. It's been said that the horrifying cases of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirits is a slow boat to turn around because it's a 500-year-old problem. However, that doesn't mean that the boat can't be turned around. The people mentioned are the most vulnerable population in the country. They are murdered at a rate 10 times higher than any other demographic. It's impossible to trace those numbers back to one root cause because there isn't one. There's many. It's a statistic wrapped up in generations of violence and racism ever since European settlers set foot in North America. But we can identify some of the problems that keep putting indigenous women, children, and two-spirits at risk. Before we uh, continue on, I wanted to bring up a book that, uh, it's a fiction book, but it definitely fits with our theme. It's called The Forgotten Girls by Owen Laukinen. And it deals very familiar. It uh, and it kind of matches this perfectly, where there's like an investigator and they're looking into the disappearance of like these missing indigenous women. Mm. Um, and I know my partner just recently read it. You know, because I've got so many books, I haven't <laughs> read all of them on my shelf. So I'm really glad to have some help. But it was very good. Okay. I got the, um, the, uh, the forgotten forgotten girls. Forgotten girls. Yeah, it sounds super fun. Yeah. Um, really seems to fit our theme today just perfectly. Yeah. I just finished a book called Girl Forgotten. Oh, interesting. It's very different. Very different. Uh, <laughs> not particularly about our topic today. No, no, no. So one of those problems is a lack of media coverage. To give you some perspective, I couldn't find whether Luisa Estrada's case, um, Antoinette's aunt, ever got solved. And also I only found one article about her disappearance. Which seems so weird because it seems like if there's more than one disappearance in the same family, that would definitely be something newsworthy, I think. Um, I could only find one story, which was her initial disappearance. And added to that, for all the information that I'm giving you today, I don't have, like, 
one or two concrete sources. I have dozens wow. of courses or sources that I've had to get and basically like stitch together, piece everything together. Because there's some from, like, the beginning, some from the end, some from the middle. And, like, some are have more information than others. So then I wound up listening to a few different podcast episodes about these two cases. Wow. So it's, like... compiled on the information as well. You really have to stitch it together yourself. Yeah. Um, that said, Aubrey and Antoinette's cases are just two that have gotten some, like, somewhat adequate news coverage. Mm-hmm. But, uh, to that point, do you know their names? Right, before like this. Like, we know so many other missing women mm-hmm. and girls' names. Not to say that other missing women girls of different ethnicities and populations don't matter. They certainly do. Mm-hmm. But why is it that we don't hear about these indigenous and native women? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that is something that is chronic. Yeah. That it's not just like a, oh these cases slip through the cracks like no this happens mm-hmm. way too frequently yep um and then historically missing indigenous women are lucky to get a mention in the news that their case does go public um and it's usually from their families elevating their stories through social media now circling back to the jurisdiction jurisdiction issue in the united states uh that i mentioned an epidemic in itself in 2013, Congresswoman Gwen Moore summed up the baffling legal paradox by saying, quote, If you are a tribal woman and you're raped on native land, tribes don't have authority over that perpetrator if he's not Indian, even if he is your husband. The local police in that area don't have any authority. The county sheriff doesn't have authority. The state trooper cannot come in and arrest him. And the only person who has an authority over that non-Indian is some sort of federal agent somewhere up in maybe, I don't know, Madison, Wisconsin, 500 miles away, question mark, end quote. Oh, that's just ridiculous. Where, like, not even the local authorities of, like, tribal or county or state, but it has to be, like, a federal official Mm-hmm. And oh, and then and then when we think about those cases where like we don't know who the perpetrator is, like what if it is a native person? What if it's not? Right, like That's like Aubrey's. Yeah, like, no like, one knows. No, so no one can do anything. It's like hands are tied. Which it's, and I'm wondering if that is one of the reasons why maybe this community has been targeted is because. They know that it it's a lot harder. Like, they have to jump through a lot more legal ho- hoops to try and even get any answers. Just, I'll get to that. Ah, oh, that makes me so upset because it's like, oh, we've, uh, like, as a country, it we've had a very complicated past with, na- like, Native populations. And, like, usually the Native people get screwed over in, like, so many agreements. So it's just like another way of of just giving them the short end of the stick yep. again again always again and i can tell you're getting a little heated <laughs> but um here's some more context for you okay so there's a thing called reauthorized reauthorization and that's a way of updating a bill to fit the current needs of whatever role it has 
There was an attempt to update a bill, which was in part meant to increase the power of tribal marshals to allow them to prosecute non-native people who commit violence against women on indigenous lands. However, when presented to the Senate, eight of the nine Republican representatives on the committee were hesitant to reauthorize the bill because of that expansion of power. That's like as if these missing people, everyone in the indigenous communities, is like if them missing as a partisan issue and as if holding violent criminals accountable for their actions was a bad thing. Now, in the case of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirits, time is of the essence. These people are literally considered endangered by authorities because when their abduction uh, is accounted for, they are considered critically missing because the likelihood of them making it home is so slim that there just isn't time to wait. That's just heartbreaking to think of, that it's like just because of your community that you come from as it is Mm -hmm. like that you are inherently in more danger right like just because of like your background Mm -hmm. because of who you are yeah now you mentioned how you feel like the way the laws are set up that it almost makes these people more vulnerable um and almost like an opportunity for predators Mm -hmm. well that's a problem outlined in the documentary, documentary Sisters Writing, which I did not see for myself, but I heard about while listening to Sarah Turney's podcast, Disappearances, covering this very topic. Part of the film, Lisa Burton details an attack that her teenage daughter suffered at the hands of four non-native oil employees who worked and lived on the reservation. The predators planned her abduction and the assault It was premeditated and well rehearsed. They did not worry about hiding their faces during the attack because they knew jurisdiction laws protected them. Oh, that is horrible that it like that. I think it's even worse when they know ahead of time that like "Mm, the system's actually rigged in our favor. Yep. It is very often and common that indigenous locals know exactly who perpetrators are. They just can't press charges because their hands are bound by U.S. law. This is hard to believe and horrifying, but in the year after the oil rigs were set up on the reservation that was in the film, the number of registered sex offenders in that area jumped from 48 to over 600. Holy crap. Yep. That's horrifying. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't believe that until I had to read it and then go to the source that it came from and read it. Be like, did, like, certainly there's got to be, like, an error there. Like, they mean, like, there's got to be a decimal point or something. No. No. It went literally from, like, a handful to... A small town. Yeah. Ugh. My jaw is on the floor right now. Yeah. Now, although this is, like very dizzying and infuriating there is a small glimpse of hope oh my gosh yes please give me a glimmer of hope here Mm -hmm. because in 2020 and 2021 the government took two steps towards curbing violence against native women in 2020 congress passed savannah's act 
which requires the Departments of Justice to review, revise, and develop policies and protocols that address cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people. Then, in 2021, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland announced the formation of Missing and Murdered Unit, which will only focus on cases of Indigenous people. Also in 2021, Oklahoma representatives authored and filed House Bill 1790, which was called Aubrey's Law. Aubrey, from our original story. All right. It's like about time something mm-hmm. happened because of that. Mm-hmm. This bill would create an Aubrey alert, which would essentially be an Amber alert for critically missing adults of the Indigenous community. However, this uh, alert will also include critically missing adults who have high disabilities or high-risk occupations. The bill was later renamed the Casey Alert Act for Cherokee Nation citizen Casey Russell, who disappeared in 2016 while walking home from a casino. Now, although this is a good thing, it was leaked that the bill's name was changed from Aubrey to Casey because legislatures would not want a a bill named after a transgender person. Oh, I hate that stupid partisanship of, like, even the, like, even the name of it just can't be, like, neutral. Exactly. It's like, this is literally based off of a specific case, and you're like, hmm. No, do you have anyone more palatable? Someone right. like, and I mean, I'm glad that at least it's still named after yeah. another native person and not like, mm-hmm. oh, we, you know, but there was this blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who disappeared too, and we're gonna name it after her, like, you know. Yeah. <sighs> now, in 2021, the Casey Alert Bill 1790 was passed to the Senate. But the Senate refused to vote on it, and it expired in 2022. That is... However, Chris, however... Okay, yes, however. As of this recording, the bill has been approved. In May of 2023, the bill was resubmitted for approval, and the Senate voted to enact the Casey Alert System, albeit a watered-down version of the original Aubrey Alert proposal. Hmm, okay. The Casey Alert system is to inform the public of any missing adult of any ethnicity who is considered to be in danger. So, similar to Silver Adults, which is exclusively for senior citizens, but now it's for all citizens. Okay. It's progress, but definitely not at all perfect, nor what we wanted. Right, yeah, that there's, it's like you realize this is supposed to be targeted for a very specific group that is chronically endangered. Right. But, I mean, I guess if, if it can, if this system can help those people and a bunch of other people who are maybe similarly in danger, then that's great. Yes, that That, is. That is the potential like sunny side up Mm -hmm. there yeah now as mentioned at the top of this episode i cannot fully and never will fully understand what it's like to be part of this epidemic um on the receiving end um but i can try i've done my best to give you a glimpse at the problems discussed in today's episode with some personal stories tied in of aubrey and antoinette and eloise 
However, there's so much more to the issue that I don't know, but I want to. For that, I found that the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Organization is a phenomenal place to find resources to educate yourself on the problem and also act for change. Myself, as a non-Native American, are rarely reminded the fact that there are somewhere between 2.5 and 6 million Indigenous people living in the United States alone, with another 2 million residing in Canada. Um, and I just want to close out the episode with that um, this was their home first, long before settlers ever laid land on eastern coast of North and South America. and. We, sh we should feel and they should be able to feel safe in their land and they deserve to feel safe in a land that was once and is always theirs. Um, so that is my Thanksgiving episode just because I wanted to shed light on the population that is so often forgot about mm -hmm. in this country, in Canada, even in Central and South America. Mm -hmm. um, they're forgotten about and they're abused and they go missing and murdered all the time mm -hmm. and they're not given the proper treatment. That is and so And I think the laws true. that I mentioned yeah. Yeah. are clear proof that people are actively stopping them from mm. getting the treatment. And that's why I'm really glad that we, we talked about that angle of it because that is something that I, I doubt that most of us just random people on the street would know that those barriers exist and the more people who know about that the more we can talk to our representatives about changing that or like at least carving out some sort of of um exceptions so that these investigations don't get bogged down in a like the in the legal system mm -hmm. um that is is just so good to know and you know i I think that I I hope that listeners feel that we have talked about this in a responsible and respectful way because it isn't our story but also I think as a podcast that covers topics like this mm -hmm. I think we do have a little bit of a responsibility to maybe step outside of our comfort zone and our realm of knowledge and be like we need to direct your attention to things that are going on that we may not be the experts on, but we can bring this to your attention. Right. And and f please further research this topic, because um, you mentioned there was a documentary that you referenced earlier on the yes. episode. Yes, there was. Um, there was a documentary, but also um, there are these resources Ooh, fabulous. where you can learn more. But not only that, but you can donate to help the cause of preventing and finding these indigenous people, especially women, young girls, and two-spirits. Um, one that I found that was a great resource for not only my knowledge, but ways and to give and to help was Native Hope, and that's just www.nativehope.org. There's also Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA.org. Uh, that is M-M-I-W-U-S-A dot org. Uh, there is the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, which is W-W-N-I-W-R-C dot org. 
Um, and then lastly, there is the Bureau of Indian Affairs, www.bia.gov, um, where those are all places where you can learn all about uh, this ongoing horrific crisis that's been going on for literal centuries mm -hmm. and donate yeah. to help, help out in this problem. I think now it's funny because there's like a, um, like I was using PayPal to buy a Christmas gift and they, they have uh, organizations that you could like where you can like, you know, add, add a dollar or something to give to your favorite charity. And my, my default one is a, a dog charity. Um, called Jindo Love with I know Jindo. yes because uh, one of our our dogs is a Jindo and she's a rescue and um, we love her and we want like all of the dogs like her to be safe and loved and out and find wonderful homes uh, so I think I might need to add another charity now yeah. or an, an, another organization to my like donate and I mean like. Every little dollar helps. Really, it, it truly does. Uh, so and if you can't donate, there's always, there's always petitions you can sign. There's mm -hmm. always, always other ways you can help. Even if it's just spreading word. Yeah, and it's funny how you can, you know, writing an email or writing a letter by hand to your representatives that can, like, they don't know that this means anything to you until you tell them that it means something exactly. to you. So mm -hmm. this should be something that means something to all of us. Yes, it should. Oh, such a great topic for this time of year, especially I think Indigenous Peoples Day was just the other day. Yeah, it was. Um, so very timely topic. Um, this is one, hopefully people will want to like come back and review this one too, just because like this is an incredibly important topic. So thank and, you so much for yeah, doing that. Of course. And again, these were, I told you two stories with a sliver of a third mm -hmm. out of 6,000 that happen every year. So right. listeners, please, please take that in, into your heart, into your head. And, yes. and just remember that. Yeah. Right. Not to make anyone feel guilty, right. but just remember like how fortunate we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that was an excellent topic, as again. Um, and now is the time where we get to... I've been waiting to do this in person for such a long time. A year and a half. To do our, our sign-off together. So thank you all for listening. And until next time, bye! bye.